Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher, greatly used of God in the last century to preach the gospel, and his influence went way beyond the 50 years as a minister and most of those years in London by way of his books and recorded sermons. He passed away and went to heaven in 1981, but before he died, Christianity Today had an interview with him. And the interviewer asked him in that final interview, what last word would you like to leave for this generation? And his answer was as clear as it was penetrating. Flee the coming wrath. Flee the coming wrath. Now that was 40 years ago, and our generation is no less in need of hearing those words. Some might dismiss it as words from a dour old man at the end of his life, except that he was quoting the words of John the Baptist and speaks of something that the Bible will not let us forget. That is, if we are reading the Bible, that the wrath of God is coming for sinners. That God has appointed a day of wrath to punish sinners. And therefore, nothing is more important for every single one of us than to escape that coming wrath, for it will endure forever and ever. Now, this morning, we're returning uh, to Psalm 110. Please open there in your Bibles if you're not already there. This is the most often quoted psalm in in the New Testament out of all the psalms. It's a psalm written by David uh, 700 years before the events that it describes, the events concerning the Christ. It's a psalm that tells us what happened in heaven when Jesus ascended and returned to the Father who had sent him on this mission of salvation to earth. And with great delight in his son's obedience and success, God says to him, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. That means right now Jesus is reigning on the very throne of God that rules the universe, reigning as king 
ruling all things with all authority and power given to him and reigning for the good of his church, those willing troops who have been made willing in the day of his power, troops that delight in having him as their king and who obey his laws and who serve his will. No wonder our our first century brothers and sisters turned often to this psalm. It reminded them that their Savior, who had died in weakness upon a cross and then was buried and rose again and, and now had left them, it reminded them that He's on the throne of the universe and He's ruling there for us. What a king to call on in our time of need. That's our privilege too. But then in verse 4, we hear that the father also said to his son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So believers, we not only have in Christ the king upon the throne, but we have a priest upon the throne, which is to us not a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. And from that throne, we can receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need, a priest who who died for all of our sins and now pities us and prays to God for us and represents us there before God Almighty. Now, today, we come to verses 5 to 7, and we see that our risen and reigning Christ is not only a king and priest, but he's also a conquering warrior king. These last three verses reveal his ultimate and final victory over all his enemies who refuse to repent and serve him as their king. You see, Christ's present enthronement at the Father's right hand is not the end of the story. He still has enemies to be conquered and brought under his feet. Now, his present rule is one that is is a bit mysterious. We don't see him. He's not physically present. And so we can't see his reign on earth with physical eyes. But he is nonetheless ruling on earth in the hearts of his people and in the midst of his enemies. Some enemies he crushes in his wrath. But for now, most are allowed to work their evil plans often frustrated by God and always on the leash of God, only allowed to do what he permits. Other enemies, he saves by converting grace, making them his willing troops to serve him. And then through them, he extends his scepter, he extends his reign on earth by the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, this has been going on now for 2,000 years since the Lord ascended to his throne. But it's all leading up to a final war. The Spurgeon says of our king, he's coming back to lead the final charge in person. So here in verses 5 to 7, David describes what Messiah will do at his second coming speaking to God the Father about his warrior son there at his right hand. David says, verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. 
He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook by the way, and so he will lift up his head. So let's answer several questions then about these verses. First of all, who is this conquering warrior? Let's be clear as to his identity. Notice verse 5 says, he's the Lord at God's right hand. This is the same one we meet earlier in verse 1, the same one that God enthroned as king on his own throne, the same one whom God made to be a priest forever in verse 4. The mighty conquering warrior is none other than our risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Yet here he is, heaping up the dead, judging the nations, crushing the kings and rulers of the whole earth. Can this possibly be our Messiah Jesus, the Prince of Peace? Most certainly. It is him, for it is through his total victory over his enemies that he will establish a worldwide peace on earth for his people. That's how peace comes, at the destruction of his enemies. Psalm 46, 6-9, nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. Come and see the desolations of the Lord. Desolations that he's brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. That's the only way this world will ever know perfect abiding peace. It's through the crushing of his enemies. It's not through some evolutionary plan of the world getting better and better until finally there will be peace for all. No, it will be through the crushing of the enemies of King Jesus. Salvation through judgment has always been God's chosen method. Think with me about Noah and his family. Very early on in the history of this planet, the whole earth was full of such violence Noah and his family were threatened by that violence. How will God preserve them and protect them and deliver them and give them to know shalom and peace? Well, it will be by the destroying of the entire violent and unbelieving world whom he drowned with a global flood. You see, deliverance came to the one family by the destruction of all their enemies who were the enemies of the Lord God as well. Or think how God brought freedom to that enslaved nation of his down in Egypt. It was through judgment upon the Egyptians, the ten plagues, and then at the Red Sea. The song of Moses in Exodus 15 rejoices in the Lord this way, the Lord is a warrior. Have you thought of him as that? The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name, Pharaoh's chariots and his army. He is hurled into the sea. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. And in so doing, 
he saved and delivered Israel. Or think about how God brought salvation to us. Us who know him, it was by judging and crushing his own son as he bore our sins in his body to the tree. And so salvation came to us through the crushing of the Lord Jesus who stood in our place. That's been the modus operandi of God throughout history. And even so, that's how this history of this world will end. How the Prince of Peace will bring an everlasting peace on earth for his redeemed one. He's coming back and he's coming to destroy all his enemies and will cast them into the lake of fire forever and ever. Salvation through judgment. This is the Prince of Peace. Can it really be, though, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who died on the cross? Yes, because the Bible reveals the suffering Lamb is also the triumphant Lion of the tribe of Judah. That he who went silently as a lamb to the slaughter is also the Lion King who roars in judgment upon his enemies as he pays them back in full for their evil deeds. As the prophet said, when this lion roars, the whole earth trembles. Psalm 24 says, addressing the gates of the new Jerusalem city above when Jesus is returning from earth. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. That's who he is. So let's be clear on the identity of this conquering warrior of Psalm 110. It's the risen and reigning Christ who will return, crushing the kings and nations, judging them, heaping up the dead. Maybe you've never thought of the loving Jesus as doing this. If so, Psalm 110 is saying, think again, friend. Think again. And this is the trouble people get into when they do not read the whole Bible and they do not hear the whole counsel of God preached, but rather pick and choose favorite verses and ideas that they like. And they end up with a different Jesus than the real Jesus of the Bible. They end up with an imaginary Jesus an idolatrous Jesus who stands in the place of the real Jesus. And it's this Jesus that's coming back in judgment for sinners. Well, that's who he is. What, secondly? What is being described here at the end of Psalm 110? Well, it's nothing short of Christ's total victory over all his enemies. Notice how complete this victory is. His enemies are not merely pushed back and left to fight another day. No, that's not the situation. No, here he will totally crush his enemies, heaping up the dead. The dead cannot fight another day. He's bringing to an end the entire rebellion against God's throne 
against the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, war over, complete victory. The extent of his victory is is shown to be reaching to the whole earth, verse 6. The whole planet will be scoured for every last enemy. And, And... Our Lord will not grow weary in battle as soldiers often did in that day in hand-to-hand combat. You can remember Samson, how he took the the jawbone of a donkey and and killed a thousand Philistines. And afterwards, he was so weary that he was about to die of thirst. And God opened up a spring and provided water for him. Or we think of that man who, who, in fighting with his sword, the sword froze in his hand, cramping around his sword, and, and how depleted of energy soldiers could get. But not our Lord, not this conquering warrior. He doesn't grow tired and, and weary. He doesn't have to stop the pursuit in order Uh, to just be content with a major victory, but not a final victory. Why not? Because he will drink from a brook beside the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. He's he's destroying his enemies and crushing them, and, and he's drinking from a brook all along the way. It's a picture of his constant refreshment to be able to pursue the enemy to the very end, to total destruction. He will not falter or be discouraged Till he establishes justice on earth, Isaiah 42, 4. Judging the nations, he will bring about true justice, righting every wrong, repaying the wicked for what they've done. This describes the total, the complete, the final victory of Jesus Christ over all of his enemies. So that's what we're reading about. Uh, Thirdly, this begs the next question, who are these enemies that will be crushed in that day? Well, they're all those who have opposed this great king, Jesus. Now, how does a king carry out his rule and reign? Well, it's through commandments. It's through laws. He rules through his laws. And his enemies are those who have refused to live by the commandments of King Jesus. As Jesus says in his parable, they have said, we will not have this man to rule over us. We will not do what he wants, when he wants. No, we will do what we want, when we want, and with whomever we want. And we will not bow to your commands. And have you tell us what to do with our bodies, with our minds, with our eyes, our ears, our lips, our time, our money, our sexuality. These things are ours. And we will not have you interfering with what we want to do with them. You see, they've rejected the word of this king. What he calls evil, they call good. And what he calls bitter, they call sweet. Not only will they not obey his word, they will not believe it. They'll not believe the things that King Jesus says about God, about man, about sin, about heaven, about hell, about himself, Jesus, the only Savior. They will not put their minds under the word of God. They will not submit their minds to his and let him tell them what to think and what to believe. 
No, they will decide for themselves what is true. They will have their own truth. These are the enemies of the great warrior king, Jesus Christ. These enemies have not only rejected Christ as king, they've rejected him as the high priest. They've ignored him. The one whose sacrifice alone can can atone for sin, can satisfy the just wrath of a holy God against sin. And they have their own religion. They have their own ideas about salvation, about God, about heaven and hell. And they don't need Jesus as the only mediating priest to come between them and God. They have their own ways of thinking they'll be okay without him. They're content to live without Jesus as king and without Jesus as priest, refusing to surrender to him and to be saved by him alone. Well, these are the enemies of Christ, the king and priest. And so he's coming in the last day as the conquering warrior to crush them. And the New Testament is just replete in similar statements. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 12. They perish, why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They refuse to love the truth. And all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Why didn't they believe the truth that called upon them to repent? Because they loved their sins and delighted in their wickedness. 2 Thessalonians 6-10, this will happen when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. If you've not come in the surrender of repentance and faith to this Jesus, you are one of these enemies. If you've not seen your many sins against Christ and come to Him repudiating them, turning from them, condemning yourself and pleading for mercy... You are one of these enemies. If you've not come to Christ as your only hope of heaven, and trusted in His atoning work alone to save you, you are one of these enemies. And notice it goes for all people because this king judges all nations. He's not just a king of Israel. No, he's the king of the entire world. And that's why he's coming to judge all nations and all their rulers and kings and peoples. Because according to Psalm 2, the whole world's in on this together. Let's let's break his bands asunder. Let's throw away his laws. They're doing nothing but restricting us. The whole world's involved in this anti-Jesus movement. We will not have this man to rule over us. And so these mighty kings... And these uh, power brokers of society and the ones whom everyone listens to, they pass down their own anti-God legislation. They break the king's laws and replace them with their own. And he will crush them, even if they are kings, even if they are judges. 
even if they are presidents, because they will learn there's a higher throne. There is a king of all kings. There is a Lord over all lords, a judge over all judges. And you see, the king is the representative of the people, and rightly so, because usually what the king says is satisfy to satisfy the people. And so it's the crushing not only of the king, but all of the people, for they've joined in this rebellion against King Jesus. And the lesson is clear. If he's not going to spare the important ones of the earth, like the king's, then don't think he'll spare you if you've not bowed the knee to King Jesus. What goes for kings goes for their people. All in on this together. No enemies will escape in that day, whether king or pauper, president or peon. These are the enemies of a king. By the way, we were all born enemies. So this is not something that has to do with somebody out there. It has to do with every single one of us who have gone astray like sheep, wandering from what? From God and his way. Well, when will this happen? The fourth question. When will this happen? Well, it's on the day of his return, but notice what it's called in verse 5. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. There is a day of wrath. The Bible speaks of it often. It's a major theme throughout the Old Testament, and it is repeated in the New Testament. And perhaps you've been asked uh, to describe something in one word before. And so you, you think, and you think, what is there that, considering the one thing uh, gathers everything up about that, the main thing about that person or object. Or... And when God uses one word to describe this day, it is a day of wrath. That's the word that he chose to describe it. The day of wrath. And not just anyone's wrath. Notice, it's the day of his wrath. The day of the king's wrath. Referring to the wrath of this warrior king, Jesus Christ. Now, such prophecies of the coming Messiah permeated the Old Testament. They were well known in Israel, so much so that that's one of the reasons they failed to see Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. He was supposed to come and crush all of his enemies. What they failed to realize is that Jesus was coming in two comings. That Messiah would come once, the first time. He would come again later, the second time. And oh, how different these two comings are. Jesus said, I've not come to judge the world, to condemn it, but to save it. That was his first coming. He comes in grace to save sinners. But the second time, he's coming in wrath to judge, to crush all who've refused to bow the knee to Jesus as king and as priest. Revelation 6 takes us to that very day, the day of Christ's wrath in this way. This is, this is history. It's going to happen. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave, and every free man, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us 
and hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. For the day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Folks, this world is in for a huge surprise. They're not counting on the day of Christ's wrath ever. It's not on their calendar. It's not on their radar. But it's on His calendar. It's on heaven's calendar. And it's a week closer today than it was last Sunday. The day of wrath is coming. And sinner friend, outside of Christ, you may be thinking about what you're going to do come Thanksgiving Day. You may think about what you're going to do come Christmas Day. But this passage is asking you, what will you do on the day of His wrath? Who can stand? None. Most people have dismissed this Jesus as a figure of the past. Oh, perhaps he, was, he lived 2,000 years ago, but he's hardly worth a moment's thought. Totally irrelevant to them and their lives and the way they live. Others think about Jesus a lot. They're in church today, but they, they've never thought of Jesus with wrath. Their Jesus is a Jesus who's all love, who would never judge people like this. Never send anyone to an eternal punishment. And, and you see, the, the thing is, many see that we've been going our own way and doing our own thing, and he hasn't punished me. And so they conclude, because he hasn't punished me, he never will. Fatal conclusion to draw. He hasn't punished me. So he do you know the real reason he's not punished you yet? It's because he's so kind. It's because he's so patient. He's so forbearing. He's giving you opportunity to repent before the day of his wrath. That's what Peter tells us. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 2. God's patience and kindness, they're meant to lead you to repentance, to turn from your way and to come and submit to Christ as King and, and Savior. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed and God will give to each person according to what He has done for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil. There will be wrath and anger. And all this will take place on the day when God will judge the world, he will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. You're either repenting or you're storing up more wrath against yourself for the day of wrath. Every day you stay away from Jesus, you're storing up more wrath. So don't ignore the kindness of God in warning you about the coming. He could just surprise us without the warning, but no, he's too kind for that. He's warned you, I'm coming. I'm coming in wrath for all who refuse to bow. Oh, hear his, his call. Hear the warning. 
that day will be more horrific than the words that describe it. It's real. Or else we might as well throw our Bibles away and go home and quit playing religion. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones left this word for his generation. Flee the coming wrath. But where? Where can we go to flee if the wrath is none other than the wrath of him who sits upon the throne and the wrath of the Lamb? Well, there's only one safe place to flee. And Paul states it in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. It's Jesus who saves us from the coming wrath. Have you ever memorized that verse? Have you ever clutched it to your heart? That this Jesus that I've trusted in is the one who rescues me from the coming wrath. You'll not appreciate Jesus until you've embraced him as the one who, who rescues you from this coming wrath. You see, there was another day of wrath. The wrath of God Almighty 2,000 years ago. The place of wrath was the middle cross on Calvary outside of Jerusalem where God came and punished sin. The one on whom God's wrath fell that day was His own sinless Son, Jesus Christ, this great high priest and King of all who trust in Him. And in love, he was there on the cross standing in for us as our substitute sacrifice. And with our sins laid on him, he bore our sins in his body to the tree. And there the wrath of God due to us fell on him. And as the infinite wrath that came upon him, it it would have taken us an eternity to suffer And yet never be done paying the debt. Yet he, because he's the infinite God as well as man, could suffer the full blow of God's eternal wrath while he hung on the cross that day. He paid it all. He suffered all that was needed to satisfy the demands of a holy God for the offense of our sins against him. He was crushed that we might be forgiven. He was treated as the enemy that we might be welcomed as God's friend. And since he paid it all, there's nothing left of wrath, nothing left for us to suffer. He drank the cup dry. That is for all who are in Christ Jesus. But if you remain outside of Christ, if you refuse to repent of your sins and come to him and put all your weight upon him for salvation and bow willing to have him as your king and to obey his commandments and to do his will. If you don't do that, you are left with the wrath of God remaining on you. That's what John 3.36 says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. We all came into the world as sinners and our sin has brought God's wrath upon us. The only thing that removes that wrath is if our trust is in Jesus who bore that wrath at Calvary. But if you don't trust in him, you don't bow to him, you reject him as your Savior and Lord, then it still remains on you. 
Sinner friend, that means every day, every morning you get up, you, you go around with a cloud of God's wrath, a sword of Damocles hanging over your head, never knowing when you might be thrust into that eternal wrath. Oh, but it's all so unnecessary because here is this one who bore the wrath in place of sinners. Think of it. If God did not spare his own son when he appeared in the place of judgment with no sins of his own, but with the sins of his people, and God didn't spare him but crushed him with his wrath, do you think for a moment he'll spare you, dear sinner, when you appear in the place of judgment with all of your sins that you've not brought to him and sought mercy for and bowed your heart to do you think he'll spare you when he didn't spare his own son? No, there's, there's only two places where the wrath of God is ultimately satisfied. It's on the cross by Jesus, the sinner's substitute, or it's in hell, an eternal hell forever by the sinner himself. Which will it be for you? All sin must be punished with God's wrath. Will it be in hell? Or will it be upon this substitute of sinners named Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath? How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation, so great a Savior? So if today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today's the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be the day of God's unending wrath. Is your sin really worth that? Is, is getting your own way worth that? Get into Christ at once by faith. He turns none away. What a Savior. The one safe place to be to escape this wrath of the coming warrior king when he crushes all his enemies. I've used this illustration before. I can't come up with a better one. But the Native Americans taught the early settlers on the plain how to survive a forest, or a, a, a prairie fire. And, and when the, the fire appeared in the distance blowing their way, they would take fire outside the camp and they would light a controlled fire and burn off an area of, of ground and, and then put out the fire. And then they go and get their wives and children and, and bring them into the middle of that burnt-out area and, and all the possessions that they wanted to spare into that area. And then they waited for the fire. And they could look at the fire with confidence, without fear. Why? Because they knew that as soon as it reached the edge of the burnt-out area, it would go on around them for there was nothing there that had, was left that was combustible. The fire had already fallen there and they were safe. And that burnt-out area, my friend, is Calvary's cross. It's Jesus Christ himself who suffered the fires of hell, of God's wrath on the cross. The fire has fallen. Sin has been paid for with the wrath of God's hatred of sin. And the one safe place to be in the whole universe is in Jesus. And you can face the coming day of judgment 
You can face this day of wrath and know that when it comes, I have nothing to fear because Christ, my Savior, was damned in my place. The fire of God's wrath fell on him that I might be forgiven. And so in Christ, you're prepared to die. And only if you're in Christ and prepared to die are you ever prepared to live another day. What a blessed way to live in Christ who rescues us from the coming wrath. And to live every day not with a cloud of God's wrath hanging over me, but with a cloud of blessing. For he was cursed. Taking my sins that he might give me his blessing. Every blessing found in Jesus Christ. So yes, flee the coming wrath. But if you're, still, if you're still fleeing from God, still running from Christ, that's not the way to flee. The only way to flee is to turn around and run into the arms of this Jesus and accept his grace and salvation while it is still the day of grace, before the day of his wrath. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed, happy, in an enviable condition. Well, that's the only way to die. It's the only way to live. Jesus, the best friend a sinner could ever have. And the worst enemy that a sinner could ever have. Which is he to you? He's ready to receive you. Let's stand and sing. If you know this Savior, you can sing it from your heart. My hope is in the Lord. What's your hope? Knowing that this day of wrath is coming. Is it in the Lord Jesus alone? Then sing from your heart. And if, if you don't know that, would like to talk further, there's nothing that I would love more than to, to hear of your concern, to get into Christ, the one safe place. Let's sing it to his praise. Father, you saw our need even before you had created us. You knew. You knew that we would fall and rebel against you. And instead of crushing us all, you sent a Savior. And how we thank you that he came not to condemn but to save. And he has left us his gospel, calling upon sinners to trust in him, to bow to him as prophet to teach them, as priest to die for their sins and pray to God for them, and as a king to rule over them. Thank you for such a gracious Savior. Thank you that in receiving him, we have all that we need to face this day of wrath with confidence. Bring others into that circle of Christ, into him this day, and to be found taking refuge in him. O oh, great King, there at the Father's right hand, before you return, would you, by your mighty power, make more willing troops who would bow and receive this great salvation. We pray it for your praise and for the eternal salvation of many. Amen. Amen.